Thank you. Well, good evening. Nice to see you all. <clears throat> I must say I'm quite pleased that I'm not facing that anymore because that color purple there, it's giving me flashbacks because my eldest son, Tom, who's 15, went to um, Soul Survivor, which is like a Christian youth thing. You'd expect better. But he came back and his hair was that color. <laughs> Andy Harding, where are you? I have a, I'm going to have a word with you later on. <clears throat> my, my, one of my other sons is five, and I was, I was speaking this morning, and I had this contraption on, and he was, he, I was down talking to him, and he pointed to this thing, and he said, Dad, that looks like a nut. You better not, you better not eat it. <laughs> so if I'm moving towards nibbling, just uh, you know, let me know. So great to be here. <clears throat> um, uh, Tam, uh, Tamsin did test my, my sense of calmness there when Moses was the one introduced. I was just thinking, how can I... How can I change Joseph to Moses in all of this situation in about 30 seconds flat? So thankfully I don't have to. Um, I've been reading, reading a book recently, and in that book, it's a book called The Road to Character. The guy who wrote it is a journalist for the New York Post. And he was kind of posing a question to himself, which ended up in him uh, writing this book. He was asking himself uh, the difference, he was contrasting the difference between what people write on their CVs and what is said about people uh, in a tribute at the end of their life. Quite an interesting two things to compare. I'm not sure how he got to that situation, but he did. So the CV is about achievements. It's about uh, external things, qualifications, things that you've done, if you like. It's about things, things that we've done. The tributes, if you like, things that are spoken about us, either after we've died or towards the end of life, those, those are different. Those are about character. Those are about the values that we've upheld that have grown inside us. Those are internal. So those are much more about who we've been as opposed to what we've done. And as he thought about this and thought about it for himself and asked questions about it, uh, <clears throat> people invariably said it was the second list was the most important. The, the tribute attributes, if you like, those were the ones that were most important as far as life goes. But as he thought about himself and as he asked around, the question really was, what does my day-to-day -day life actually demonstrate? The time that I'm spending, the choices that I'm making, the things that I'm doing, does that actually back up that this second list is more important than, uh, than the first one? <clears throat> so as, as Tamsin said, today we're finishing a story on Joseph. We're finishing a series on Joseph and we have the opportunity now to look back on his life. And what I'd like to do is just look, not necessarily at his CV, if you like, although that was pretty uh, excellent. There's a lot on it. But more looking at these tribute attributes, these characteristics, if you like, these, um, these things that were internal to him, that actually as we go through it, we'll see that God took and tested and strengthened and used to make him who he was, and therefore to enable the external circumstances that arose as a result of that. So Joseph's legacy certainly was pretty uh, tremendous. To be able to say at the end of your life or having your CV that you managed to save an entire nation from annihilation due to famine, that's not a bad thing to be able to put on there. However, we'll see that that, as well as being God's sovereign choice for Joseph, that really was a byproduct of the life that Joseph lived day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. 
you'll see that the series has been entitled Life in Technicolor. And the thinking about that is, is so much that there's all sorts of shades to life. There's things and times when things go well, and there's things and times when things are not going so well, when things are difficult, when things are challenging, when things are tough. And it's the mixture of all of those things together that create the life that we live. Someone has said in recent times about legacy, the legacy we leave is the life that we lead. The life of Christ in us and through us, passed on to others in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we think about that term legacy, very often you think about you know, something in the past, but as we think about it in that context, it's, a, it's about what's happening here and now. All of us here tonight, we are living our legacy, if you like. We're, we're doing it each and every day, because that's how life is lived, day by day, moment by moment. Every day we've got the opportunity, we've got a myriad of choices to make every day, but they are choices. They're proactive choices we've got. How intentional we are about how we live, about what we do, about what we say, about what we think, about what we prioritize, about how we develop, about the attitudes that we adopt. Day by day by day by day. So, let's have a look at Joseph and see a few things that we can learn from his particular life as we open uh, the scriptures together. Just before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this story of Joseph isn't just a story. It's contained in your holy word. It's contained there for a reason. And as we open your word by the power of your spirit, it comes alive. It comes alive in our situations. Each of our individual circumstances you are so much aware of. You know what it is that we all need to hear tonight both as individuals and as a collective group together. You know us so well. You love us so much. You're so patient with us. And you've so much to give us. So we pray for an openness. We pray for just a realization of what an incredible privilege it is for your word to come to life, for your word to be able to be... um, applied to each of our situations, no matter what it is that we're experiencing now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you think of Joseph's life, there's lots of things that we could look at. There's lots of characteristics that we could talk about. I could probably keep you here till tomorrow night. I'm not going to. Um, So we're just going to look at three things. First one is uh, integrity. Elsewhere in the Bible, in in one of the wisdom books, the book of Proverbs, it says this, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And that gives us a bit of a clue as to what integrity is all about, doesn't it? Integrity is really not being duplicitous. Integrity is when everything lines up. So what I'm thinking and what I'm saying and what I'm doing, all of those match All of those line up. All of those work together. Someone who's got integrity isn't divided. That is duplicity. Somebody who has integrity doesn't pretend. That's hypocrisy. They're consistent no matter where they are, no matter who they're with. In all situations, they're demonstrating this consistency that people can depend on. 
They're an open book, somebody with integrity. They've got nothing to hide, nothing to fear. They are who they are, wherever they are. I think integrity is also about translating truth and good judgment into action. So it's great to have the thought about things. It's great to know why to do things. It's great to understand those values. But if it doesn't actually translate into something, it loses something, doesn't it? So I think an element of integrity brings that in too, that actually there's action attached to it. It's also about knowing the why behind it. So we could have a list of all the things that we ought to do in situations, and we just kind of follow those, a bit like painting by numbers, if you like. But someone with integrity has thought that through, has come to a conclusion that this is why we ought to do it this particular way. And the final thing, well, there's probably lots, but the final thing I've got about integrity is I think it also has something to do with continually being refined. So you don't just get a big sort of dose of, of integrity at some stage and that's you sorted. It's about being introspective, it's having self-awareness, it's understanding that actually there can be progress made, development can be done, refinement can be done. It's about looking in the mirror and having others help you look in the mirror and looking in the mirror of Scripture and seeing how can we develop this attribute in my life, in my situation. So having integrity, probably as, you th as we look at Joseph's life, it doesn't always guarantee an easy life. Sometimes, and probably usually, it's quite the opposite. It means that in any given situation, you really know the right thing to do. You know, you know what it is. You know the steps that you ought to take. But that by no means uh, <clears throat> suggests that the consequences are always going to be favorable. Sometimes they're not. And actually, that's the test, isn't it, of, of true integrity. And as I, I read Joseph's life, I think this integrity was evident even from an early age. I think there's a wee bit, there's a couple of schools of thought as far as Joseph when he was younger. Now, he, really, he didn't get off to the best of starts in that he was a favorite child, and that doesn't help him with the rest of his siblings. But that really wasn't his fault. <clears throat> and I think... <clears throat> rather than being arrogant and sort of puffed up and all the rest of it, I think he was maybe just a bit more naive. And as I say, I think this, <clears throat> this integrity was evident in his life. He was given dreams by God. He spoke them out. He didn't change them. He didn't do anything about it. There was a transparency and an openness there, wasn't there? Well, at any rate, we don't know which one it is, but um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm leaning to the more naive. I'm leaning to the fact that that integrity was inside him, that he'd understood the things of God, and that that was something that God tested and developed. In fact, in, there's, Joseph's referred to in Psalm 105, and then there it says that Jesus, that God tested his character. From the time of having his dreams right throughout life, his character was tested. And I think that, that for me, um, <clears throat> suggests just the presence of that integrity. But integrity played a really important uh, part in his, his life right throughout his life. I think even as he went on that fateful journey to find his brothers, remember? His father Jacob sent him to go and find them and, and report back and so on. He went to the first place they were meant to be and they weren't there. And he didn't just give up and go home. They weren't there, so he asked around and, and he went and he found them. So again, he, he was demonstrating a sort of wholeheartedness in that situation. 
But as we know, he ended up getting um, sold into slavery and he ended up in a chap called Potiphar's house. But in that situation too, integrity was evident. He served in that situation. He was who he was who he was. He did the right thing. He lived by the values that were instilled in him. And actually in that situation, the circumstances did well for him. Potiphar succeeded. He succeeded. He got promoted. He was quickly in charge of everything that was happening. The good judgment turned into action and it worked well. But then, <clears throat> again, as we know, uh, situation, another situation arose and when he didn't, uh, when he didn't um, succumb to the advances of Potiphar's wife, he, he knew that the right thing to do was not to do that. He thought it. He knew it. Uh, he ran away. He, took, um, he headed for the hills whenever she chased after him. In that situation, he'd absolutely done the right thing, hadn't he? He demonstrated integrity. He could quite easily have succumbed and probably nobody would have known the wiser. But then as a result of that, he was wrongly accused and as we know, he ended up in prison. So Joseph's integrity continued to be evident and continued to be tested. And I wonder actually if the greatest test was when he had the greatest responsibility. So not when things were tough, but whenever he was second in command in the nation of Egypt, which probably at that stage was the most powerful nation in the world, he really, he could do whatever on earth he liked. He had incredible power, incredible influence. Uh, the money, the, the position that he had, can you imagine what he could have done? And we probably don't even need to imagine it because we can think back to situations and nations in other parts of the world where people have got that power. And they haven't had the integrity that Joseph had, and things have gone wrong. But in that situation, his integrity was clear. So instead of embezzling, instead of um, <clears throat> taking advantage of his position, instead of that, he was trustworthy. He was utterly trustworthy. He planned, he was objective, he was creative in what things had to happen. He provided the people with food, as we know. He stored it up in the first seven years. Afterwards, whenever the famine started, he sold food to all the individuals. Whenever their money ran out, he introduced more of a barter system, and he took their livestock, but he still gave them food so that they stayed alive. Whenever that ran out, he took their property, and ultimately, whenever that ran out, they gave themselves, or he was willing to offer food for their uh, for their slavery. And you think, actually, would somebody do that unless they really trusted the person that was encouraging it? Here's what, here's what it says that the people said in Genesis 50 at that situation. They said to Joseph, you have saved our lives. You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Now that to me is a real demonstration of trust and of the integrity that he demonstrated in those situations. They had given everything to him, but what they saw, they saw the transparency in his life and they recognized, you've been for us all the time. You have saved our lives. You have served us well. So we see that Joseph was values-driven. The integrity of his inner being was evident in all circumstances, right from being in prison, 
right to being the, the number two in a land. He was the same. Ex, the external circumstances <clears throat> there, I think, were irrelevant. What was inside was, was important. And it's a, good, um, it's a good opportunity for us to stop and think, is that a word that's used about us? How is it that we could be more intentional about that word being applicable to us? As we said at the start, we've got choices day in, day out about how we live our life. Thinking about those uh, tribute attributes, as we've called them, as opposed to our, our external achievements. How is it that that can be progressed? Are there people that we know, that we look up to, that we see? There's a, there's a woman or there's a man who I, I see demonstrates integrity. We can get alongside them. The, the, the Word of God is full of advice and wisdom as to how to do those sorts of things. The choice about what to do about it, that rests with us. So that's the first thing, integrity. Second one then is contentment. You just get the feeling as you read through that story of Joseph that he was content. I think contentment seems to be a fairly elusive characteristic or attribute to have. Now, there's, there's no doubt he, he probably wondered and had questions whenever he was thrown into the pit, uh, whenever he was trailed off to another country. I'm sure he wondered what was happening. But they seem to be less important to him because irrespective of all of those, just as we read that through the, his, his life, he just seemed to get on with it. And to me, that attribute of contentment is what was going on there. So we, we know <clears throat> that contentment can't be bought because we see many situations and probably in the lyrics of a whole lot of songs written by people with an awful lot of money, discontent is always there. So, so we're, pretty, we're pretty sure that you can't some go to a shop and, and if you've got enough money, you can buy contentment. It, it doesn't work that way. But equally, if, if you don't have anything, if, if you're in poverty, that doesn't necessarily bring contentment either, does it? Contentment, then, isn't about just being satisfied with where you are. I think it's much, it's much, much more than that. For me, contentment is so much to do with trust. And we're talking about contentment and integrity. These attributes we're talking about in the light of God's Word, in the light of a life of faith. Contentment is about trust. So we've been designed, we've been created by a Creator God. And we don't have the capacity to fully understand all about the Creator because we are the created. We don't have the capacity to understand about His power, about His purposes, about His wisdom. <clears throat> and so inherent in being a created one is that necessity to trust. To trust that God does have all the answers. To trust that God does have the ability to plan, to trust that his wisdom is perfect. So in us, just by virtue of being created by the creator, is that need to trust. And for me, I think that's the simplicity of what contentment is, trusting God with, with all our heart. We never read of Joseph complaining. We never read of Joseph blaming somebody else. We never read of Joseph acting like he was some sort of victim. I think that's because he trusted God, because he was content. And when you, when you say it like that, it's pretty simple, isn't it? 
And it is a simple concept. That doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to implement in life. It probably is much more of a lifelong daily choice and decision, but it's something that we can do. Now, this whole idea of complaining and of blaming and of a victim mentality, it's, it seems a bit of a national pastime in situations that I'm sure we all find ourselves in. It's very easy to complain. It's very easy to blame, isn't it? When I talk with our senior team in our, in our business, one of the things I say to them, I don't want you to hear you complaining about anything to your team. Nothing. Not the weather, not the traffic, not anything at all. Don't complain because it's so easy to do that and then that can set the context. Now, maybe there are some things that you want to get off your chest. You come and do it to me. Uh, I'll close the door of the office and you can, you, know, you can have a bit of a rant there if you want. So everything around us encourages us to just to be discontent, doesn't it? To have more, to have bigger, to have better. We're encouraged to compare ourselves to everybody else because we deserve it. I read something uh, recently about um, a study that had been done into the reasons for people buying new cars. And do you know what the top reason for buying a new car was? Because somebody down the street had bought one. So that raises your level of discontent. Somebody down there's got one and suddenly you think, well, oh, mine's looking a wee bit old. I better get a new one myself. What's the antidote to all of that then? <clears throat> I think it's about, there's something about being proactive, isn't there? recognizing that actually it, it is a process to change. And I'm glad, as I read in, in Scripture again, in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about this idea of contentment, and he very, very happily for me says, I've learned to be content in all circumstance. So it doesn't just happen like that. It is a process. It's something that we've got to go through, and he learned it. And probably the easiest way to grow in our contentment is to grow in our gratitude. So instead of complaining and blaming, it's to be thankful. Thankful for what you've got. Thankful for who you are. Thankful for your cup of tea in the morning. Thankful that actually you can taste things. Thankful for color, even purple. Thankful for everything. Having that disposition of being thankful as you, as you walk uh, to the shops, as you walk to work. You're seeing different plants, you're seeing different people, you're seeing the innovation of, of, um, of human invention. It's just a different mindset, isn't it? Looking out and being thankful for whatever, for everything that God gives us and actually recognizing too that all good things come from heaven above. Again, God's word says that. All good things come from heaven above, so our ability to be thankful should find its natural end point in God. He's provided it for us without needing to. Be thankful. Another thing to help in contentment is to give generously, to give from what we've got, to look at other people in other situations and see, where, where can I help? If I've, if, I've, if I've only got a little, then I can only give a little, but I can still be generous. It's also about having priorities. So thinking of that car situation, if I've already got a plan, you know, I've got this car, I'm going to change it in three years, I'm saving up, all the rest of it, then if somebody else gets a new one, I'm less inclined to be discontent, I'm less inclined to, to make some sort of rash comparison between me and them. So there's things that we can do, and, and this idea and this concept and this attribute of contentment, as we see it in Joseph's life, it's certainly something that I would like for people to be saying about me. The third one, perspective. 
So although Joseph lived his life day by day, although he demonstrated integrity, although he demonstrated contentment, he had a perspective that was bigger than today, if you like. He had a perspective that was beyond just the present. So we've already said that Jacob maybe didn't make the best of um, choices in making Joseph his favorite. But having said that, I'm sure there's a whole lot of good that Jacob did do. As we read God's word, Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel. In fact, his name gets changed to Israel. Jacob is one of the patriarchs. We hear about when we read about the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So you can be sure that when Joseph and his brothers were small, Jacob was talking to them about his God, the God that he wrestled with. Imagine telling that story. Jacob wrestled with God. So Jacob was instilling into them the reality of who God was, the promises that he'd given, the promised land that he'd spoken about for this, his chosen people. All of those things were passed on by verbal tradition because they didn't have scripture at that stage. So Joseph, had, he had taken that on board. That was the perspective that grew inside him. Joseph knew that God had promised them a land of their own. Elsewhere in the Bible, in, in, in the New Testament, there's a chapter in the book of Hebrews that, that lists lots of people and lists the faith that they demonstrated. And Joseph appears there too. <coughs> and it's interesting to see what's spoken about him. So it doesn't talk about his planning and, and dealing with the famine and all the rest of it. Here's what it says. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. That was, that was his perspective. God's promises, God's provision, God's faithfulness. That's what was important to him. That was the, 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 the perspective that he lived the life with. And let me take you very quickly through the story of, um, of, the story of Joseph and show you the perspective as we read it in Scripture. In, in Genesis 39, when Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house, here's what we read. The Lord was with Joseph. So he su succeeded in everything he did. The Lord was with Joseph. Later on, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. The Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. The Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. And then Joseph ends up in front, of, uh, in front of Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. Here's what we read. Joseph says, interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and, and tell me your dreams. But the perspective was, this is about God. This isn't about me. He had his perspective right. Later on, as he spoke to Pharaoh, it's beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means, and he can set you at ease. As for having two similar dreams, Joseph says it, it means that these events have been decreed by God, and he will soon make them happen. And then actually, Potiphar, or sorry, Pharaoh seems to get it because Pharaoh, having heard all of that, here's what he said, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people and will take orders from own and they will take orders from you. 
Only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. That's the perspective that God brought. And then, as we know, uh, what happened? His brothers arrived, however many number of years later. And what happened in that situation? He could have, he could have exacted an incredible amount of revenge. He could have had quite a lot of fun. Let's be, let's be honest with him. But he didn't. He said, don't be, angry, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve our lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. That's the perspective he had. And you can see, just as you read, you can see it evidenced in every stage and every situation throughout his life, throughout. The the circumstance didn't matter. The perspective was clear. The perspective was there. He knew that there was more. He knew that God had a bigger plan. So we see these these different attributes then of uh, integrity, of contentment, and of perspective. And I'm sure there's lots of others that we can see in his life, that they they grew and they strengthened and they made him who he was. But as I reflected on this, as I um, read about this, I think they came from something even more significant. Tamsin mentioned at the start, this, this idea of humility. That was the source of them, if you like. Joseph was a humble guy. And it's his humility, I think, that points through the ages to Jesus. Because anything we read in the Old Testament and Scripture, all of it points towards Jesus. All of it has its end point there. And that was the main attribute, I think, that Joseph had that pointed to Jesus. Let me read what it says about Jesus and his humility. In uh, Philippians, in the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 2, we read this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So I think humility then, it's almost like it's the soil that all the other attributes grow in. It's the the source, if you like, that everything else grows by God's grace. And humility really just says, God is God and, and I am not. I think that's the simplicity of it. Humility says God is God and I am not. And Joseph actually articulated that very sentiment whenever later on in life when his father died, his brothers thought, well, dad's dead now. He's probably going to exact his revenge now. But Joseph said whenever they, whenever they raised with this with him, he said, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? Humility, then, is, is a choice as well. 
an ongoing choice. The thing about humility is God doesn't give it. It's our choice. Most of the situations in, in, in the Scriptures, wherever humility is talked about, it's two words, humble yourself. Humble yourself. That's the exhortation. Being humble puts us in a place of total dependence on God. So that attribute and that choice then, it's foundational in our relationship as, as created to the Creator. Constantly recognizing God is God and I am not. And so the choice to be humble and, and therefore the opportunity for relationship with God, that choice <clears throat> that that choice gives is it's only possible because of what Jesus did, because of what we read, we read there, because of the choice he made to be humble. He came and he died, the perfect example of humility. He gave up everything. And the degree to which our attitude is like that of Jesus, that, that determines the degree to which we can be utterly overcome by the reality of that sacrifice and the difference that it makes to us. The grace that we can receive, the invitation that we can accept to be called the children of God. So humility has to do with our attitude to God and also to do with our attitude to others. Just prior to that bit that I read in Philippines, it says this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. And elsewhere, in fact, in, in Romans, in one of the older translations, there's, there's a little phrase that really encapsulates it well. It says, in honor, preferring one another. In honor, preferring one another. So this thing about being about being humble. This isn't a comparison thing. It's not about comparing ourselves to others. This is a choice to think of others before ourselves, to think of others first. That's what it means. It's not saying I'm better, he's better than me, or she's better than me because of X, Y, and Z. It's a choice to think that actually I'd rather see them and their needs before mine because actually I trust that God's got my back. I trust that He can do it. He can, he can help me. He can provide whatever I require. Maybe He'll use other people as well. So I don't need to be focused on me. So it's not a comparison thing. It's this choice to think of others before ourselves in honor, preferring one another. That's humility in action, isn't it? That doesn't leave any room for pride or for selfishness. That, that attitude, you know, can be applied in everyday situations. And in fact, it, it needs to be implied in, in everyday situations. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me. So this, this week, for example, I was walking in front of our house. <coughs> and there's a chip shop around the corner from our house. <coughs> Quite often people have their chips and then they just, you know, they drop the the big bit of white paper that goes around it or the little bit of cellophane that goes over the top of your fish or whatever it is. <clears throat> and it just kind of floats around in the street. And I'm sure sometimes I've ignored it. <clears throat> but this time I chose to pick it up. And actually as I reflected on that, as I put it in the bin, I thought, that is humility in action. 
<clears throat> because if I hadn't picked it up, what am I thinking? I'm thinking that that person who dropped it is, a, is I'm better than them. Pride is rising in me. I'm thinking, oh, I would never do that. This is, <clears throat> this is a disgrace. They shouldn't be doing that at all. So even in the smallest situation like that, you can see the, the impact that it has on our choices. So if I let it go there, I'm immediately thinking I'm better. I'm immediately think, I'm feeling maybe a bit of a victim because it's outside my house and why am I not clear? I'm complaining, I'm blaming, I'm doing all of those things. But as soon as I do what actually I always know is the right thing to do, if there's something there, I know what to do. But actually recognizing that that, even picking up a bit of rubbish, that can demonstrate what it is that God wants to grow in me. And another situation that actually spoke to me in, in my workplace. So we have a nice kitchen area in work. There's a, there's a nice worktop and there's a dishwasher and, you know, it's all, it's all very pleasant. But sometimes the dishwasher, people don't bother emptying it. Sometimes they spill their coffee on the worktop and it's a wee bit messy and they, they leave things in the sink. And I'm sure in years gone by, I've probably, I've probably had a bit of a grumble. But a few years ago, I decided, right... Anytime I go in there, I'll just empty the dishwasher. If the, if the worktop needs cleared, I'll clear it. If there's a couple of cups in the sink, I'll wash them up and I'll put them away. So it's just, you know, it is just a choice and a habit now. <clears throat> but we were, I was having a meeting with the senior leadership team and we were talking about influence for some reason. <clears throat> and one of them said to me, oh, you mean the way that you keep the kitchen clean? And that's, that was a reminder, I suppose, of how people watch and how actually the seemingly little insignificant things can have a difference and can actually add to your own influence. So I'm sure that my influence there is probably enhanced because I've been wiping up a bit of the stains of the, of the tea and so on. Again, that's God working through me and my choices. A small, small thing, but it is these small, small things that make a difference, and I'm pretty sure <clears throat> that it was those things that were noticed about Joseph. Whenever he was in Potiphar's house, he was doing something above and beyond. <clears throat> Whenever he was in the prison, again, maybe he was cleaning up the worktop or whatever it was. So it's not necessarily the big things that we have to go after. Usually those are the culmination of a choice in smaller things. <clears throat> so this humility before God and others then, this this really sets us apart as followers of Jesus, doesn't it? So a lot of those other attributes, you know, integrity, a lot of those things, you can have them and define them without any reference to Jesus or Scripture or God or faith or anything. But as soon as you add that dimension, that's where the difference lies, isn't it? Having a humility that enables us to trust in God. Having a humility that the overflow of that trust means that in honor we prefer other people. Whether it's drivers who are in front of us, whether it's colleagues in our workplace, whether it's families or neighbors or even somebody on the street or somebody in the bus in front of us, anyone in honor prefer one another. That's God working through us. That's how we can make such a difference. And then in those situations, whenever people see there's something different there, so often we get an opportunity then to give a reason for why it is that we're doing that. So how can we develop some of those things? A very obvious way is through prayer. 
Now, all through Scripture, when we hear about God loving us, that speaks of relationship, doesn't it? And we've got relationships with lots of people, and relationships happen through time together. Again, that's not rocket science. And the time together we have with God can be in prayer, doesn't it? My um, youngest son, Callum, has been known at times whenever he's been put to bed, he likes to, he likes to procrastinate a little bit. And even when he's in bed and Katie and I are downstairs, very often we'll hear, Dad, I need you. I need you. So up I go, up the stairs to see what he needs. And sometimes he says, I need you to scratch my back just about here. It's just a wee bit itchy. <laughs> and other times he's maybe saying, I need you to pray for something or I need you to get something because I can't reach it. And for me, that's a great example of prayer, isn't it? So we can go to God with the back scratching, but hopefully we're not only going to God with those little things. What is it that we're asking him to do? What are you asking him to do for you? What are you asking him to change in you? What opportunities are you asking for him to give? What's actually breaking your heart as you come to him? What situations that you know physically you can, have nothing, you can make no difference to, but actually you trust that he can in another part of the world, for example? So yes, it's good to go to God with the, you know, the back-scratching requests, but sometimes we go with things that we know God's going to answer anyway. What about those other things? That's a way for us to grow in trust. That's a way for us to get past self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-confidence. That's a way for that trust to grow. And of course, opening God's word. Letting it hit us anew. Just as we were chatting earlier on, I was chatting to Emily, who told me she'd spent years studying the, the, the story of Joseph and writing a book on it, but still gets excited whenever she opens that word because she knows that God's going to bring it alive again. And isn't that, isn't that a predisposition that we all need as well? Use this gift that he's given to us. And also one another. He's given us one another for a reason. He's given us one another to act as mirrors to each other, to act as, as, as support for one another, to act as, uh, as bringing challenge into situations. We need to open that door of vulnerability to let God speak through one another to us and so change us as well. So those are straightforward things, but again, they require a choice, don't they? There's something intentional that's needed in those situations. And also with some of those small things that we mentioned, don't, don't focus on what um, others are doing wrong. Again, that's a, a sort of natural societal thing to do is let's focus on what everybody else is doing wrong. Let's not focus on what everything everyone else is doing wrong. Let's focus on what we can do to help. Isn't that a better way of looking at it? Don't worry whether other people are helping you, but do worry about whether we're helping other people. It's just, a, it's just turning things on their head, small things and doing those in different, small, everyday situations. So as we, as we take that overview of Joseph's life, what was his purpose? What was the overriding purpose of his life? Now, clearly, he was called for a moment in time. Those 14 years of, of preparing for the famine and working through it, he was the man for that. But I think his purpose was to grow in humility. 
His purpose was to grow in his trust and to serve other people. In honor, he preferred everyone else because he'd got that trust right. Now, I'm sure Joseph was imperfect. I'm not saying uh, that he was perfect at all, but we've learned, we can learn so much from that situation. And I think that's helpful for us too. Sometimes it, it can be unhelpful for us to think, well, what's the big thing God's got for me? What's the big vision that I need to be chasing after? What's my passion? And, and, and actually focusing more on those external things. I'm sure Joseph didn't have a clue what those big things were in his life. He was just ready when God asked. He worked on the things that he could work on. He made the choices about the things that he could choose. And he trusted that God would put him in the situations that married up with with, um, with what he was good at, with the abilities that he had, and with the need at that particular time. So for us then, this, this question of, uh, of humility, it's good just now, this evening, to have an opportunity to reflect on that, to respond to God together, to, to really believe that actually he wants to provoke us. He wants to give us more. By his spirit, he has got uh, infinite supplies, if you like, to give to us. Infinite strength, infinite change, and, and he knows where it is that we need that. So we could just, let's just invite the, the, the worship band back up again and just <clears throat> start thinking about what it is that you think God is saying to you. What is it that he's, um, what is it that he's provoking inside your heart? in your mind? What's that situation? Is there a person actually that you think, you know, maybe in honor I haven't been preferring that person as well as I ought? What is it that you've thought about humility? Where is it that trust, where can you um, trust God just that little bit more? And remembering too, this is, all of this is a process, isn't it? So we're not wanting to make everything right. It's not about being perfect. It's about asking God to make us better. Again, it's having that disposition to want to progress. So we'll have a prayer team led by Becky over in that, that corner over there. Um, if there's things that you would like somebody just to pray for you about, not to counsel you about, not to get deep and heavy about, but just, just to pray for then there'll be a bunch of people there very happy and very willing to do that. <clears throat> and let me pray for us now and just as we use this space to take that opportunity to respond to him. Father, we thank you for your knowledge of all of us. We thank you for that. We thank you for what we have because of what Jesus did. We thank you for the perfection of his humility. He gave up everything. We can't begin to imagine what that means. He gave up everything for me. Everything for me so that I can have a life of fulfillment. Not a life of ease, but a life that is full. A life where, where by your spirit you're moving in me. You're changing me. things are at this precise moment in time. Where do you want me to change? 
I want to open up my life to you. I want to give my choice. I want to choose you. I want to choose humility. I want to choose to accept what it is that you've got. So Father, will you, will you meet with us here by your Spirit? Will you protect this space? Let us have such a keen awareness of your love for us and your desire for us.